Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, as the port strike stretches to day four, negotiations stall. We look at the core issues being fought for and the huge divide between both sides. Plus, battery breakthrough. Toyota has unveiled ambitions to have the size, weight, and cost of electric vehicle batteries. We look at the impact of this breakthrough on battery technology. And so many e-scooters. What's the law? We look at the challenges of regulating this new mode of travel on Vancouver streets. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. strike uh, of more than 7,000 workers at ports across the province is in its fourth day after talks between the two sides stalled yesterday after, after noon. The two parties are at odds over issues including automation, the use of contract work, and the cost of living for workers. About 20 minutes ago, I've been working the phones all day today, about 20 minutes ago, I was able to get a general sense of uh, what is being asked for by the Longshoremen's Union, the ILWU. And what I can say so far is what they're asking for is a wage increase of 11% in the first year and 6% the second year. So a 17% wage increase over two years, they're also looking for an $8,000 inflation-adjusted allowance, a one-time allowance. There's also something they call retirement payment account. Now, currently, longshoremen receive $81,000 upon retirement, and they have to uh, at least have worked 25 or at least provided 25 years of service to get that full amount. So that's $81,000. They're asking for another $10,000 over two years uh, as part of that. So that would bring the um, uh, the number up to $91,250. Now the all these numbers that I provided you in regards to wages and benefits, the total percentage increases in wages and benefits over the two years would be 21.8%, so quite significant. Now, I've said this before on day one of this strike, even as they were threatening a strike, and I'll say it again today. The true issue over the long term for longshoremen is automation, and we'll be looking at that issue uh, at the four o'clock hour, but any strike has a huge impact on the amount of goods and services that uh, flow through our ports and ultimately to our businesses here in British Columbia. Joining me now to talk about the impact is Bridget Anderson, the CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Bridget, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Uh, I apologize for the long introduction, but I thought I'd let folks know a little bit about the wages that are being requested behind closed doors. Uh, your thoughts, first and foremost, on the impact or what you're seeing or hearing already in regards to day four of this strike. Well, the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade has been sounding the alarm bells for for more than a week now when we saw that this could possibly end in this result. And we are very, very concerned. You know, you mentioned that there could be an impact on businesses in British Columbia, but we're talking about an impact on businesses and consumers right across the country. Any work stoppage will fan inflation and increase the prices also has such a significant impact on our supply of goods, which will end up hurting prices down the road. So, you know, we are very concerned and we are calling on the federal government to reconvene parliament and pass back to work legislation immediately. We cannot let this strike go on longer. Uh, so you're saying that you, you can't even wait a couple more days or the business community can't wait a couple more days or do you think it's already time to get these folks back to work? 
It is time to get back to work right now. You know, any further delay of even a day or two will have an impact that takes time to unwind. We have a situation where we've got cargo shipments that are backing up. We've got a situation where cargo shipments uh, are being diverted, could be diverted more in the future. And that could be a permanent measure, not a temporary measure. And any kind of uh, stoppage in or disruption in the supply chain ends up impacting prices, not just for businesses, but businesses then often have to pass them on to consumers as well. And this comes at a time, as we all know, that we're really struggling with a lot of issues around inflation, affordability issues for businesses and individuals. So this is a really precarious time. And any kind of work stoppage will just further fuel the flames on this. Now, earlier this year, there was a a report from the World Bank and S&P Global Market Intelligence um, and they said that the container port performance index, which I guess just basically uh, gauges the efficiency of ports and the ability to get goods and services moving through those ports, um, Vancouver came at uh, came out at number three hundred and forty seven out of three hundred and forty eight. Uh, I mean, we're almost dead last in regards to efficiency and the ability for cargo ships to get in and out and unload their their uh, their cargo. Uh, does that concern you as, as a business leader? What do you think needs to happen here? Yeah, I read some of that report as well, Jazz, and I think there's a few things that are important to remember that we have been suffering from supply chain disruptions for some time due to the pandemic. At the same time, ports all along the West Coast, both in Canada and the U.S., have had some situations that they've been dealing with around labor disruptions and some other um, factors as well, which means that cargo shipments have already been diverted to other ports. And when that happens, that could be temporary or it becomes permanent because it's an easier and more efficient port to get in and out of. So that's one of the reasons why we say this is a really precarious time of recovery due to the pandemic and supply chain issues that have been uh, impacting the port for some time. And if you even strip out COVID. I mean, if you think about the floods and and all of those kinds of factors that really impacted port operations as well, Mm -hmm. we need to just make sure that our supply chains stay open and goods continue to move for businesses and for individuals, but also for Canada's international reputation as a stable trading partner. Mm -hmm. Now, I was watching some footage yesterday uh, about uh, the uh, Long Beach port uh, just outside of Los Angeles. They had about 600 longshoremen laid off because of automation. It was actually Mm -hmm. Fascinating to watch this technology of containers being taken off, put onto these um, move these machines that move them, but there's no human beings. It's all automated, and these vehicles will stop, wait for the other vehicle to pass by. It's quite the ballet on at this port as you're watching all this happen, but there are very few human beings actually working there. I saw the same sort of thing in a video uh, from the Rotterdam port, the 10th largest, the 10th busiest in the world and most busiest in Europe. Um, do you think the Vancouver port needs to head in the same direction of full automation to increase efficiencies, even if that means the laying off of longshoremen over the medium and long term? Well, I think we're all kidding ourselves if we don't think that automation is going to impact all of our jobs, regardless of what industry or sector that we are in, even you and I, Jazz. (laughs) And so, you know, I'm not going to comment on whether the port should be looking at automation or their operations or how that might impact workers. But the truth is, is that automation is impacting all of us. And so we all have to grapple with that and figure out how we are going to create new jobs and also ensure that technology doesn't 
outstrip uh, individual productivity and that we can ensure the two can balance together. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is a really difficult time in a lot of these industries where automation has had a bigger impact than perhaps in journalism or in some other areas of business. Uh, but it's coming. It's coming down the pipe, and we all have to be ready for it. Yeah, and, and I don't necessarily disagree with regards to you can't hide from technology. I mean, nobody provided the same sympathy to bank tellers when there's Interact uh, and, mm. and online banking or travel agents, many other professions. But do you think, shouldn't there be a bit more time for longshoremen to, to negotiate a deal that, is for, for them, beyond the wage increases, provides some sort of surety and protects certain jobs. And you can't just do that over four days of negotiations. It may take a few more days. It may take another week. And we should let that process play out rather than have uh, the government stepping in and uh, and then legislating them back to work. We take a broader view of how this uh, dispute is impacting businesses and consumers. And we do believe in the negotiating process and think that's an important process to continue. But because we are already facing such a precarious and fragile recovery, we can't afford to wait a few days or another week, which could have significant long-term impacts if a labor dispute continues. I mean, we're talking about rising prices, we're talking about fanning inflation, but we're also putting hundreds, if not thousands, of jobs at risk as well. And so that's why we're calling on the federal government to intervene, because this will have could have long-term significant impacts on our economy throughout Canada mm-hmm. and also impacts our international reputation as a stable trading partner. And when those things happen, then other countries look for other stable trading partners. And, and that's why we're saying you need to act now. Bridget, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jazz. Appreciate it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We often are talking about the port. This is a different type of port. This is, of course, moving ferries uh, and moving goods, and not goods and services, but people. Now, this weekend, we heard, of course, frustrated travelers face long lineups and sold-out sailings at uh, BC Ferry routes over the Canada Day long weekend. There were cancellations in smaller routes. There were overflying parking lots and in- intermittent issues with lots of online booking, with their online booking system as well. So lots of challenges when it comes to BC ferries. Uh, today, Global BC legislative reporter um, Richard Zussman spoke to BC Ferries CEO Nicholas Jimenez about the challenge this weekend and what we can expect moving forward. Richard Zussman joins us now. Good afternoon, Richard. Hey, Jess. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I, I wanted to get a few of these uh, port uh, buzzline calls out of the way. You can see hear people's frustration in regards to what's happening there, a different type uh, of issue, but it's certainly uh, along our port as well, along our waterways. Uh, what did Mr. Jimenez says, say to you today, and it's going to be for tonight's news hour, what did he say to you in regards to what transpired this weekend? Yeah, so it was not ideal with the coastal celebration out. They weren't able to get a handle on what unfolded Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. He was quite proud of the way the system actually reacted following that, that we didn't see the same sort of weights going back to Metro Vancouver from Vancouver Island on Sunday or Monday, Tuesday. People planned uh, those that didn't want to wait. Uh, when at different times, maybe Sunday, maybe Tuesday, uh, all of that meant that Monday was not as busy. 
But if you are planning on traveling for the rest of the summer, plan ahead, book your reservation, plan your trip, even consider using public transit and walking on the ferry because the staffing challenges BC Ferries is currently facing will not be solved overnight. And there are possibilities that late night sailings could be canceled or not running, that there could be other staffing shortage impacts. And because of all of that, walking on, not bringing a vehicle allows you uh, some extra flexibility. So there's an awareness that there are challenges, but the minister has put the pressure on to Jazz. I spoke to him today and he said those late night ferries, they're going to run in August. And those are the 10 p.m. and 11 p.m. sailings. I'm talking about if you're you know, just catching up here, those were previously scheduled, but because of the coastal celebration being off and staffing shortages, they did not run those later night sailings, and that led to some of the pressure as well. So the minister has challenged BC Ferry, says, we want those vessels to run during the August long weekend. We'll now have to wait to see if those can be delivered. You know, him and I said, and we've spoken about this before, they are seeing record-breaking volume of demand for BC Ferries, coupled with staffing shortages, and that's leading uh, to incredible pressure on the system. And in some cases, for some travelers going from Tawas into Swartz Bay, a six sailing wait over the weekend, which in my time on the island, I've never heard of. Yeah, I, have, I haven't either. Uh, you know, we're just talking about longshoremen here and automation and and uh, but but for the sake of ferries, you need those human beings to work. I mean, it's a good paying job, great benefits. Why is BC Ferries uh, having difficulty hiring people? Yeah, there was a global shortage of marine workers, and there's a very specific training that these workers need. We've heard this message: the BC Ferries has ramped up hiring. A lot of those jobs are parking attendants, off. Uh, boat off vessel workers that don't have those same marine safety requirements, the same training and finding those workers with training is challenging. And there are some private vessel operators, not just ferries that are paying more for the same workers. And the green party MLA, Adam Olson, one of the green party MLAs has said that he'd like to see the province open up the checkbook and say, you can pay a more competitive wage at BC ferries to get those trained workers in a marketplace where there is high, high demand. And so that's why we're seeing some of those pressure point jazz is uh, there's not as many people going into this field, being trained, and there's higher demand, not just within the ferry network, but throughout the, the marine landscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, we touched on this a little bit, but I think it's important uh, we, we, we have this conversation again. You know, BC Ferries was set up under the BC Liberals, uh, while still owned by the public, it was, it was at arm's length. You know, you do your thing, you run it like a corporation, there'll be no political meddling. We have moved back to a system, I don't know how to best describe it. Is it, is it just like the old days? No, it's still separate, but there seems to be a bit more um, uh, political involvement. The board itself uh, has a prominent new Democrat, in the case of Joy McPhail. Are things changing because of that, and should pu- the public be concerned? I'm not sure the public should be concerned. I think there needs to be an opportunity here to give CEO Nicholas Jimenez his opportunity to work. He's the brand new CEO. Uh, He hasn't been on the job uh, particularly long here. He has a track record of success at ICBC, and he is now, you know, in the midst of reviewing operations of the way things work. He has stood up to ministers before Jazz. You know, I remember breaking the story that the provincial government was going to be tapping into ICBC to provide drivers that ICBC gas rebate. 
And then the next night on the news hour, we interviewed Nick Kamenez and he's like, I'm not so sure this is the right fiscal decision considering we need to support um, our investments that we have at BC Ferries. Ultimately, and as you know, this often is the case, the politicians won out here, mm -hmm. but Jimenez is willing to stand up and tell ministers that is not possible. That is not something I believe we should be doing. So I think we need to watch what he'll be doing and then clearly the role that Minister Rob Fleming, the transportation minister, will be playing and that board is crucial here. You know, we know the relationship that Joy McPhail has is a good one with Nick Jimenez, a good one with Minister Rob Fleming, how all of them work together to get the support fairies needs while also giving them the independence to do their job is a really fine balance there. And we'll see how this province, how this government does to hit that balance considering the pressures we're going to see. August long weekend is going to be a big test for BC Ferries and their relationship with governments because BC Ferries is responsible, but the frustration is often directed not towards the CEO, but but towards the politicians. Here is Nicholas Jimenez in that conversation with you, and you will get a lot more of it on tonight's news hour. Take a listen to him in regards to how long it'll take to resolve some of these delays. Take a listen. The issues we have with with crewing and staffing generally, those are going to remain. And so I guess we need to be aware that we are running thin right now as a business. And we've done a lot to prepare for a very diff, like a very busy summer. We've hired a lot more people. We've put additional compensation into license officers. We've leaned on reciprocal agreements to bring in more licensed mariners. And still, we know that we are going to be challenged. The fixes required for staffing, they're not fixed in a, in a week or a month. They're going to take uh, a while, a season, a two seasons, in order for us to fully get back the resilience we need. So we're planning for the best, and we are managing, you know, for the possibility that there may be complexity, and there may be occasions where we have to cancel sailings. That is uh, BC Ferry CEO Nicholas Jimenez. Uh, final question to you, Richard. Uh, do you know if when the next vessel or next order will come in regards to a vessel? I'm not talking even the coastal class or any of the classes. Do you know? in regards to when we'll have another replacement uh, within the system? I don't know, and I'm not sure where we're at in terms of the planning process of that. And I also don't know where we're at in terms of uh, maintenance checks and last time that significant repairs were done on the vessel. So, you know, let me check in with BC Theories on that jazz, because clearly that's important information for the public to understand. We don't know when vessels are going to break down, but we do know when they hit sort of an age of expiry or an age where they need substantial repairs. And we have a pretty robust, healthy fleet, but these vessels get old. Mm -hmm. And the coastal celebration, I think, caught everybody off guard with how substantial the work was needed. And the fact that we have these staffing challenges with people doing the work, only one company bid, C-SPAN. And Minister Fleming said today, don't blame them. But the reality was they have a lot of work in front of them, too. And that's part of the reason why it took past the Canada long weekend to get that vessel back on the water. It's now back on the water but it's a few days too short for a lot of uh, frustrated passengers who had the waits uh, that were much longer than uh, they would have been with that vessel on the water. Yeah, absolutely. Richard, thank you. My pleasure, Jess. Thanks for having me. Toyota has unveiled ambitions to have the size, the cost, and weight of batteries for its electronic vehicles following a, a breakthrough in its solid-state battery technology. Now, the Japanese car maker's uh, top battery expert today named Keiji Keita uh, said that simplifying the production process for bat battery materials would bring down the cost of its long-awaited new generation technology. Uh, using a solid-state solid uh, battery technology, the range for an EV would be about 1,200 kilometers 
and the battery could charge uh, by 10 minutes. They're hoping to be in production by 2027. Now, a lot has to go into all of this before they can do uh, mass production, but they feel confident that it can be done. Joining me now to talk a little bit about um, EV technology and this announcement from Toyota is Jeremy Cato, automotive journalist at CatoCarGuy.com. Jeremy, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing very well. Uh, your thoughts on this? Uh, is this too good to be true, or, or is this something that we should be excited about? Uh, I don't think it's too good to be true. The technology that Toyota is working on, it, it basically has been worked on by many other uh, companies, and Toyota is working with Panasonic on this, and we do know Panasonic. Panasonic also has some expertise in batteries. But basically, what these companies are trying to do is replace a liquid electrolyte with a solid electrolyte. Um, which presents mass and cost and um, those kinds of problems, weight, um, uh, well, reduces that cost because the liquid electrolyte is heavier than the, the solid-state electrolyte. So, um, But that, that's the chemistry and the technology. From a corporate perspective, I would never bet against Toyota. Uh, it's the biggest car company in the world. It's immensely profitable. It has footprints all over the world, and Toyota has had a change of leadership at the top. There's a new CEO um, who seems a little bit more agreeable uh, to the battery movement uh, direction than the now chairman of the supervisory board, Akio Toyota. So put all those pieces together, big company, technology that is known but not cost-effective, and I wouldn't bet against Toyota. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if you're thinking about purchasing an EV, maybe a year or two away, maybe you're a year away, should you hold off, uh, not just because of this technology, but because of potential competition, the the big boys in, in the automotive sector outside of Tesla getting into this market? Is it better to wait or should you, if you are interested, start looking? Well, I, I think Canadians have already made that decision. Um, you know, there have been a couple of uh, consumer surveys of Canadians. Um, a new one from J.D. Power came out last Thursday, mm-hmm. uh, which looked at uh, buying intentions of Canadian consumers. And about two-thirds of Canadians have zero interest in an electric vehicle or close to zero. And the, the reason why, there's two reasons why. One, they're too expensive. Mm-hmm. And two, the infrastructure doesn't exist to support them on a national basis. You might be able to find a charging station in Vancouver, um, not so much if you live on the prairies or in, in you know, uh, in the interior of British Columbia. And then cost. Um, the, the average, I mean, the cheapest electric vehicle you can get in Canada is around $40,000. And yes, there are some incentives um, out there to back it up. But you're going to wait a long time to get that EV, and it's not going to be top-of-the-line stuff. So you're looking at a Nissan Leaf around, you know, thirty-nine dollars to $42,000. Uh, Chevy Bolt, which has been discontinued, but there's still some out there on dealer lots, again, around that area. Um, and, and that's just more than what most people are willing to pay for a new car. The vast majority of Canadians want to spend less than 30 grand. Mm-hmm. So it really is, I mean, just based on what you've told me, which sounds very reasonable, it, it, it we're still five years away, three years away, whatever it is, once that competition hits <laughs> driving those costs down. And, well, that's right. You know, have, like governments uh, in developed countries and in you know, and that includes, of course, China, because China is now the biggest auto market in the world and the number one battery electric market in the world, um, have decided that they're, they're going to make battery electric t- technology the future. Um, they haven't told the, the marketplace and they haven't told consumers how they're actually going to make that affordable and realistic. 
Um, so we wait to see about that. And not only is cost the issue, but the entire supply chain uh, for battery electric vehicles is filthy. It's carbon intensive. It's mining intensive. Uh, and none of the issues around mining the, the raw materials uh, in, in the volumes that uh, a global car market of, say, 100 million new vehicles a year, which is what the new car market is right now, mostly internal combustion engine vehicles, uh, nobody's really come up with a, a, a you know, viable plan of how to mine those raw materials, refine those raw materials, and put them into vehicles at the scale that governments uh, in Europe North America and much of Asia would like to see happen. Hmm. I'm just going to switch. So I would wait. Yep. You know, you asked me the question. Yeah. If I were going to go buy a fuel efficient and reasonably environmentally friendly vehicle, I'd buy a hybrid. You'd buy a hybrid, which that that I way would. you don't have the range range anxiety. You're going to have uh, if you need to go somewhere, you, you'll still have a, a tank of gas, but you have the the added advantage of of uh, of EV. Um, I'm curious. Um, in the Vancouver Sun today, there was a story about the Hydrogen Technologies and Energy Corporation unveiling its fifth hydrogen fueling station in Kelowna. Um, I think it was uh, they did that uh, last week, and it was the first outside of the Lower Mainland in Southern Vancouver Island. Walk me through on this issue of hydrogen, and we keep talking about EVs. Others say hydrogen is the future. I mean, walk me through where you see hydrogen fitting in in all of this. I, I think for the rest of my life, um, you know, whatever that be, 20, 30 years, I'm, I'm just, I, I, my, I believe that hydrogen will be at best uh, a fleet um, source of power. So hydrogen can work if you have a... Uh, if you're, uh, let's say, if you're at the Amazon uh, distribution center down in in uh, Richmond near the near the airport, mm-hmm. um, you fill you have a you have a hydrogen filling station there. You have fuel cell vehicles, and they go out and they come back to the same place. To create a hydrogen refueling infrastructure on on a national or international scale is cost prohibitive. You're talking, you know, 150 to 200 thousand dollars per charging station or refilling station. That's not going to happen. It could be a niche product for for fleets, uh, but I, I but I've been writing this story about hydrogen is the future since 1996. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I wrote scores of these stories for the Globe and Mail. Uh, you know, and it, it's just not going to happen overnight. It's a very long term strategy. It doesn't mean it's not going to be the solu- a solution. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to be a large scale solution. Yeah, I remember uh, Gordon Campbell talking about the hydrogen highway along uh, Highway yeah. down the Sea to Sky. But as you say, it's going to take a, a, a very long time. And you're right; it may be focused on heavy duty trucks and, and fleet vehicles. Um, oh. One one final question for you, sure. um, and that's te- uh, Tesla. Uh, prices have dropped. Uh, for Tesla vehicles, vehicles over the last year, year and a half, you know, I was reading an article where somebody last year paid, I think it was sixty thousand, and they're now available for fifty-one thousand. I can't remember where it was. It was somewhere in the states, but prices had fallen. Um, is it is this temporary, or do you think this is just the uh, just a case of more competition entering the EV market, and this is driving the cost downs? Yeah, Tesla Tesla sparked this price war in January uh, when it basically made a, a global announcement of, to cut prices by about 20% on a global scale. Um, that that number differs by market to market, but that's basically the, the approach Tesla's taken. Now, Tesla's doing two things. One, a lot of Tesla's models are very old. Um, the Model 3 was launched in 2018. The Model, the Model S, you know, has had, they've had updates, but the Model S dates back to, what, 2012, 2013. 
2013. Uh, and te- so Tesla's protecting its market share with old with an old fleet. There's no Cybertruck, and God knows when that's going to come. Um, but it, it needs so it needs to hold on to its existing market share. That's one. Number two, Tesla is the most profitable per unit EV maker in the world, and Tesla can see what's going on in the marketplace, like we're talking about today, that a lot of people like Toyota and others are coming to market with a very serious intent on the EV uh, marketplace. So what Tesla's doing is trying to hold on to its market share and stamp out any uh, of the new uh, inter, inter, uh, companies that might come to the marketplace, you know, sort of strangle them in their infancy. Hold on to its market share because Tesla can afford to cut prices because it has got such an efficient manufacturing process and it hasn't had to update a lot of what goes on in its factories because the technology you see out there, the designs themselves, while the software has been updated, the vehicles themselves are largely the same as they have been for quite a few years. That gives Tesla a huge, huge cost and uh, cost advantage, which is putting into the marketplace as a price advantage. But they see the competition coming. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, it's, it, and it is coming. I mean, there's, I think there's 61 EV vehicles for sale now in Canada. There were, in 2023, there were 47 in 2022. So what we're seeing here is a huge rollout of new electric vehicles. They're not going to go away, but they're not going to get a lot cheaper anytime soon either. All right. Jeremy, thank you so much. Really appreciate the conversation with you today. Hey, my pleasure. We'll do it again. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that is Jeremy Cato, automotive journalist at CatoCarGuy.com. Now, how often um, have you, uh, you know, hung out with your uh, coworkers and say, hey, let's go grab a drink after work? It's just part of culture, isn't it? Or meeting up with friends or a weekend. It is centered around alcohol. Uh, and that is the way it's been for, well, decades. And that's the way society's been set up. Let's go grab a drink. Well, increasingly, you're seeing um, a rise or certainly talk of sober culture. Joining me now is our contributor, Jerry Merritt Judson. You, you've researched this. You've been following this a little bit, haven't you? Yeah, I have a little bit. Even before, um, I've just sort of been interested in, yeah, sort of normalizing or at least reevaluating our sort of cultural relationship to alcohol. Because like you said, always go for a drink. It's expected that you go out for a drink. And it's kind of weird. You're like a little bit odd if you say, oh, no, thank you, I don't drink. And then you kind of always have to answer for it. So I, uh, yeah, delved into some sober curiosity, if you will. Are you a little sober curious? Do you want to take a walk on the mild side? You're not alone. More and more young Canadians are teetotaling for a variety of reasons and re-examining the social expectation to drink alcohol. And if you are experimenting with temperance, one's winery in the Okanagan is a good place to start. I spoke to Chris Pagliacchini, a co-founder of One's Winery, about the philosophy behind his business. Really what we wanted to do is just allow people to taste Okanagan grapes and Okanagan wine without the burden of alcohol. We had gone out and we tasted non-alc wines and they're very sweet. They don't really taste like wine. So we're trying to get those flavors that you can only get by fermenting grapes and express them in a wine just without alcohol. How do you make wine that is non-alcoholic? So the, the process that we use is very similar to traditional wine. Grapes are harvested at the optimal time. They're fermented in a tank, aged in a barrel, and just the very last step before bottling, we filter out the alcohol. So that's that's where we come in. So we specialize in that step. We take the wines, we filter the alcohol before we 
before we bottle them. Get out of here. So just like a very fine microscopic sieve. Yeah, exactly. That's yep. hilarious. So it's you and Tyler. How did you guys meet and like how long have you been at this non-alk wine thing? So about a dozen years ago, uh, Tyler and I worked at Dirty Laundry Vineyards in Summerland. So we, we worked together there. We became friends. After that, Tyler started a traditional winery called TH Wines. And he did that for about 10 years. And then he wound the winery down and he actually stopped drinking the same time. And he found that, you know, although he didn't want to drink alcohol anymore, he still miss those flavors like as a winemaker and someone that wanted to pair wine with food you still want something you crave that so he came to me he's like we have this problem he's like i've gone out to the marketplace i've tasted all the non-alk wines that i can find and they're all sweet and they, they just do not taste like wine there's none of those flavors that i miss as a winemaker i think we should do this we should give this a try because there are people like me out there that want this like they don't want alcohol but they still want these okanagan grape flavors mm-hmm. so that's where you know he proposed the challenge to me and we we started doing that you obviously have to have your finger on the pulse of like what people are drinking and people who aren't drinking alcohol or drinking because I've noticed personally anyways you can maybe speak to this like making actual cool awesome good drinks available for people who do not drink I feel like we've seen a pretty big uptick in the last I'm gonna say handful of years like I've noticed it in restaurants as well there's mocktails that are actually cool and complex as opposed to like you can have a Shirley Temple like you're a five-year-old exactly yeah and, and what we found, too, is like if you're concerned about drinking alcohol, like for health reasons, you want to cut it out or even reduce it, you probably don't want to like substitute alcohol for a whole bunch of sugar. You look at these non-alk wines and you read the back of the label. And if a can of Coke is 100 grams per liter of sugar, some of these are like, you know, between 50 and 90 grams a liter oh, for sugar. Wait. So it's like, I want to give it up alcohol, but I don't want to just substitute that with sugar. You want something that is, you got wine flavors, but you don't want to just like bury it with sugar too. Obviously, if you're concerned about your alcohol intake, you're probably concerned about the amount of sugar in there as well. So whether it's your health, your wealth, or whatever else, if you're not drinking alcohol, you've got legitimate options these days. I'm about to be a little bit cheesy here, but cheers to that. Am I right? Cheers to that indeed. It's kind of interesting because I know we did a segment on this about six months ago on just events in the lower mainland here where it's centered around Sober culture. So mm-hmm. uh, by all means, come out. We'll have a great evening, but there's no alcohol served. So there may be this type of wine for sure. But I'm amazed at the, the, the growth of just this this type of thinking. It's it's not that it's mainstream, but it's becoming very mainstream quickly, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Give it to the young people. It's just like a total reversal of like 40, 50 years ago. And everyone used to be drinking when they were young. And now the young people are like, what? Wait a minute. I think you need to uh, have uh, Chris send us some wine and we should taste it on air and just sort of talk about what, what, it, like, what it tastes like. I think that's a fantastic idea, I'm Jazz. I'm serious. I think we should. I'll email him. I'll email just him, yes. I, I think that is fabulous. <laughs> Jerry, thank you. Thank you. That's our Jerry Mayor Judson talking about non-alcoholic wines and sober, curious culture. But last year, we told you about Operation uh, welcome Home. It's an organization aimed at providing temporary housing for Ukrainian refugees. Uh, at that point, uh, they had just announced um, uh, one of their projects in Vancouver. Since then, uh, they've uh, had a, a project uh, in Richmond. And today, they announced a project in Surrey as well. Joining us now is Matt Illich, Director at First Track Investment and Development. Matt, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jazz. Yeah, this is a great, uh, a great initiative by the development industry. Walk me through it. How does it actually work? So um, how it works is that Operation Welcome Home 
matches families fleeing uh, Ukraine with homes that are going through the redevelopment process here that are owned by developers that will otherwise be either empty or underutilized. It's meant to be a short-term measure that will allow the families to get a a Canadian address, which is key for them to get uh, services that they require to start a new life here in, um, in Canada. So what happens is that the developer in either Vancouver, Richmond, and uh, now Surrey can identify a home that might be a fit. They can reach out to me or to our partner, Success. Um, we can then establish it, whether or not the home is, is suitable, and then Success essentially will bring in uh, a Ukrainian family to live in the home. How many homes are, are, are owned by developers uh, that could potentially be used for something like this? Well, right now, throughout the lower mainland of, of British Columbia, anywhere from 2,500 to 4,000 homes get uh, demolished each year as, you know, as part of a redevelopment. Um, so there is a large, uh, you know, I guess, uh, number of potential homes. Currently, we have uh, 13 homes in this program. Uh, we just started, as you noted, uh, last year. And now we've had to, we got approvals for the City of Vancouver, City of Richmond, and Surrey. So now it's really about getting the message out there um, in order to get more developers on board to help out uh, the people who really need it. I guess when these families come, I mean, it's not like you have an employment history or any rental history. Like it's very difficult. It would be very difficult on your own to find a place. Oh, absolutely. So most of the people who arrive from Ukraine arrive with less than what we would take if we went away on a, on a quick trip to the Okanagan, literally just a backpack and that's really about it. They have no um, work history here, no credit history, nothing. So they really need uh, the, all the help that they can get to get established. And what's, what we have seen is when they arrive here, very quickly they sign up for programs um, and start to look for work. Um, so it, it's been a great success so far, and we're really excited to, um, to expand the program. Uh, are other develop, are development in, industry types doing this in other cities uh, in Canada, or is this a uniquely Vancouver thing? I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, I imagine they likely are, um, but I've been solely focused just on getting the um, the ball rolling here in the Lower Mainland. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would imagine, yeah, it, it probably is happening in other cities, and and the, the demand is is quite huge. Um, so my hope is that. Um, you know, we can continue to roll this out throughout the lower mainland into different cities. Um, and, uh, you know, I do have contacts in, uh, in Toronto and, and, and other uh, large cities in, um, in Canada. And I'll be sure to make sure that, uh, that this is on their uh, radar as well. I, I'm assuming you've met some of these families. What kind of, when you talk to them, what do you hear from them? What I hear is a lot of just, um, you know, a lot of devastation. For example, we have... Um, you know, a family that uh, moved into a home that uh, that uh, that I own on um, in, in East Vancouver, and it's a um, you know it's a family of of five: a grandmother, grandfather, their daughter, son-in-law, and their five-year-old um, and their five-year-old uh, granddaughter. And what I hear is just you know the sheer devastation uh, that they experienced uh, back home. But they're very grateful to be here. Um, they're grateful that you know instead of uh, Instead of um, dodging, you know, bombs and, and bullets, and, and these folks were from Mariupol, so quite in the epicenter of, of the uh, Russian invasion. Um, you know, their five-year-old right now is they're trying to find her place for kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the homes that other homes that we have seen and and been involved with, 
it's really nice when you're able to go up to the to the uh, houses and you see sidewalk chalk, children playing soccer, mm-hmm. and you know we're just trying to make sure that these people are safe and secure. So overall, um, what I can tell you is that um, these people are very grateful to be here in Canada. Um, they are, and they're very uh, hopeful that better days are to come not just for them, but also for their, for, for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So your ask today is um, uh, develop more from folks from the development industry are listening to this and municipalities at city hall level uh, that they get engaged as they, as much as they possibly can. Ab- absolutely. That would be my big ask. Um, one is that if you're a developer currently uh, with uh, you know, homes and projects in Vancouver, Richmond, and now Surrey, uh, please consider this program. I think it's uh, hugely beneficial um, for the people coming in from Ukraine. And I want to give a, a big you know, thank you to city staff in Richmond, Vancouver, and Surrey for really championing this cause, as well as the political support that we've been getting as well at the municipal level. It's been um, overwhelmingly positive. Well, it's a great cause, and I'm so glad to see that you're expanding further into the uh, lower mainland. Matt, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Jazz, and I, I really appreciate this. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.